0: The Office of the Inspector General has a self-disclosure protocol, and it is different from the CMS self-referral disclosure protocol. Listen to this episode and find out how.
1: Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade.
0: Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade and I am your host. Today I'm going to be talking about the Office of the Inspector General, otherwise known as the OIG, their self-disclosure protocol. And if you have not listened to the episode on the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, self-referral disclosure protocol, otherwise known as SRDP, I would strongly encourage you to listen to that episode prior to listening to this episode. Because this episode slightly builds on that episode where we talk about the requirements under the SRDP. Now, It's interesting because a lot of times clients would refer to self-reports to me and say, well, we'll just self-report this. And I have to let them know that there are different entities to report issues to. So, as you'll see in this episode, if it is 100% just a stark law issue, then the appropriate protocol process for self-reporting is to CMS under the Self-Referral Disclosure Protocol. However, if it involves in a kickback statute, civil monetary penalties, and the like— then it needs to be reported to the OIG through the OIG's self-disclosure protocol. And the reason why you need to understand which world you're operating in is because both of them are slightly different. But obviously, you're reporting to a different reporting agency. It's the OIG versus CMS for Stark-only related issues. So, for the OIG SDP self disclosure protocol, it primarily deals with the violations of the civil monetary penalties statute. And the statute is broad and you could be excluded from participation in Medicare or Medicaid for violations of the civil monetary penalties. Plus, especially if the False Claims Act is implicated up to three times as a fine and penalty, plus the additional per claim a penalty that could be imposed. So the fines and penalties and exclusions can be extremely broad and frankly could be the death knell for a lot of healthcare organizations. If the case is actually brought by the government and is not self-reported. So as I've indicated in previous episodes, it is vitally important that when issues are discovered, that the errors or omissions that occur be reported because otherwise uh, individuals could be implicated under the False Claims Act, plus very severe financial penalties could incur, as well as the exclusion authority that the oig has for civil monetary penalties violations so in general broad categories the civil monetary penalties cover drug price reporting false or fraudulent claims and i'll go back and emphasize that grant contracts and other agreements Kickbacks, like violations of the anti-kickback statute, misuse of the Health and Human Services Department words and emblems. I really haven't seen a lot of activity in that area, but it's one of the categories patient dumping or violations under the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, EMTALA, and also the Stark Law violations that we've talked about previously on Stark Integrity, any issue that would violate the Stark Law for which a full adherence to an applicable exception would not apply. So that's the civil monetary penalties. So let's assume that there is an allegation of one of those Issues. And primarily for this purposes, it would be faults or fraudulent claims, violations of the anti kickback statute, or Stark Law related issues. You know, I will emphasize here if it's 100% Stark Law, then the OIG SDP is not appropriate. You should be using the CMS, Self Referral Disclosure Protocol. So, what are the benefits of disclosing to the OIG? Well, first off, and this is a major issue, that the OIG tends to believe that self-reports are being made because the organization has a robust and effective compliance program. So usually, if an entity reports under the OIG SDP, then there's a presumption against Requiring a corporate integrity agreement. I'll emphasize that again. There's a presumption against implementing a corporate integrity agreement. Secondly, the multiplier is substantially less based upon the damages. And I'll talk a little bit about the damages in this episode. But typically, the the OIG will impose a 1.5 multiplier. So it's not just singles. And it's not treble. Uh, so let's say that you have a $1 million uh, single overpayment that you have identified. It'll be 1.5 of that. So it'll be 1.5 million versus the 3 million if, if there was a treble multiplier that was applied. And, and, and that's a significant saving. If the organization is thinking about a self-disclosure and the, they're concerned about money, then going through the self-disclosure protocol, there is a savings of money because of the use of the 1.5 multiplier versus the 3 multiplier. Third, it reduces the potential exposure not only for the organization, but for the individuals involved in the organization for False Claims Act liability, including the reverse false claims. In previous episodes under Stark Integrity, I've talked about the personal liability that has been generated for individuals who are involved. So let's say, for example, that you have found a million dollar overpayment, but the chief executive officer says, hey, we're not going to make it. Uh, We're going to lie low uh, in high probability the government would never, ever find it. So I don't want to lose that $1 million. Well, now there's actual knowledge of the CEO that there's an overpayment owed. The CEO is now intentionally deciding not to repay or make a self-report. So now that is a reverse false claims for which the government can go after that chief executive officer individually, and there could be criminal implications for that that individual. So it does, by filing a self-report under the OIG SDP, it does decrease the potential exposure under the False Claims Act. And finally, another benefit is, is sort of, an I'll put in air quotes, quick resolution. They try, the OIG has stated that they will try to settle issues that are reported through the SDP within 12 months. Now, I have not... Really, I've got I have two in uh, as of the time of the recording, and my hope is that we will resolve both of those issues within twelve months. And, And maybe I should have said this at the beginning, as it relates to self disclosures from my practice, I have more disclosures under the CMS self-referral disclosure protocol than the OIG SDP. And that's primarily because most of the issues that that clients bring to my attention, Uh, deal with a violation of the Stark Law. And after analyzing the anti-kickback statute, I have reasonably concluded that I do not believe that the anti-kickback statute is implicated. Now, CMS may disagree with that, and they may end up turfing the SRDP to the OIG by indicating that they do believe that there is sufficient evidence of a kickback issue, especially if they can prove intent, then, then CMS could kick that to the OIG, but that would be very, very rare uh, for that to occur. Now, who can use the OIG SDP? Basically, any healthcare provider, supplier, or other persons that are subject to the OIG Civil Monetary Penalties Authority. Uh, So, this is not limited to any particular healthcare industry or medical specialty or type of service. The other thing that you'll make clear in this episode is that you do need to identify And just like the self-referral disclosure protocol to CMS, go through a legal analysis as to why you believe a law has been violated that could impose penalties under the civil monetary penalties. So you can't say things like the government may think there is a violation here, but we reasonably disagree, Because that's not articulating that you believe that there is an actual violation. So you can't waffle in your uh, self-disclosures. You have to come out and say, we believe that a violation has occurred and this is why. And obviously, you want to have this more of a civil monetary penalties versus having the government say that there is a clear violation under the anti-kickback statute for which we're coming after individuals and the organizations criminally. So you can advocate in the disclosure that you believe that the civil monetary penalties is violated versus that there is a clear violation under the anti-kickback statute to keep things civil versus uh, turning them criminal. Next, when should the SDP not be used? Well, first off, I and I've talked, queued this up at the beginning of this episode, it should be for actual false and fraudulent claims, not mere overpayments or errors. If you believe that there are mere overpayments or errors, then you should be talking with the Medicare or Medicaid contractor in order to resolve those issues. But I would use the SDP by indicating that we believe that false or fraudulent claims uh, have been submitted if we believe that an individual or entity makes a claim for a service that was not actually provided, is provided but already covered under another claim, like it would be covered under a skilled nursing facility Claim a composite rate and should not be separately billed. It is not properly coded or is not supported by the medical record. So, by way of example, if you believe that you build something that uh, should have been a certain claim, but it was actually a lower claim. As long as you did not uh, find any evidence of intent to bill at the higher claim, then that could be just a mere overpayment and not technically a false or fraudulent claim. And you'll need to work with somebody who's knowledgeable from a healthcare legal perspective to understand that difference. But it's not to be used just for mere overpayments or errors. Just like the SRDP, this is not a request for an opinion. I've already covered that it cannot be exclusively a Stark Law issue. And like the SRDP, that when you file, then the statute of limitations is actually told. So when you when you go into the SDP, then you can actually claim that six-year period. And what this is saying is if you're accepted into the SDP by the OIG, Then if it takes two years to resolve the matter, because the statute of limitations is told, you cannot cut off the two years if you've been kicked out or you decide to voluntarily withdraw yourself from the SDP. So there's agreement that the statute of limitations is told through the acceptance into the SDP. Now I've been asked questions, what if we've never been accepted? Well, if you haven't been accepted into the SDP, then technically the tolling of the statute of limitations does not apply and you can withdraw and the statute of limitations will continue to tick. So that six year statute of limitations under the civil monetary penalties is tolled if you are accepted into the protocol. And like the SRDP for CMS, for the Stark Law issues, you must state the corrective actions that occurred in order to prevent the possibility or probability of that issue happening in the future. So now I'm going to talk practically of how do you file a self-report under the OIG SDP. Well, first off, it's electronic. There's electronic form and you have to go to the OIG website and you can actually, it's one of these forms that you electronically fill out and you can actually fill it out and not submit it and you can save it. So you can start the draft of the self-report and but not file it. So there's a, a specific electronic form. Form that needs to be filled out. So some of the requirements on this form is you need to have the name address and type of healthcare care provider including the provider identification numbers, tax ID numbers, etc and a lot of these that I'm going to go through as a list are very similar to the SRDP with CMS. If the disclosing entity is part of a system then an organizational chart will need to be put into place. then next is the name of the designated representative. Typically, when I file an SDP as well as an SRDP on behalf of a client, then I am the named designated representative for the purpose of, of discussing matters under the self-disclosure. But it could be an, an authorized representative like the chief compliance officer, in-house legal counsel, or chief executive officer that could be listed there. Next is you need to have a concise statement of all details relevant to the reported conduct, so the type of client claims, The transaction, the period of time in which the conduct occurred, and the names of the persons that you believe were involved. So if it's like a relationship between a hospital and a physician group or particular physicians, then all those entities and individuals will need to be identified. Then you need to specifically state which federal laws are implicated. And in this electronic form, there's actually a check the box. Now, be careful here because uh, some of the boxes that are in there say that there was intent to inappropriately bill. And if there was an intent, do not check that box. So, you have to be very careful with respect to the citations. And there there are numerical statutory citation so that's the reason why you need to have a lawyer that is actually going through the description of each of those sections before you check the box then you have to indicate which federal health care reimbursement program was actually involved and the estimation of the amount of damages and i'll talk briefly about that and whether or not uh, you believe that there. The issue is currently under investigation by the government. What corrective action has been put into place or enhancement of the compliance program in the name of the individual authorized who enter into the settlement agreement? And this could be somebody besides the designated representative. So the individual is most likely the chief executive officer of the organization or the physician, if it's a physician practice, and then as part of the SDP, the high ranking officer like the chief executive officer needs to sign a certification and certification just basically states that to the best of that person's knowledge, the submission under the SDP contains truthful information and is based on a good faith effort to bring the matter to the government's attention for the purpose of resolving potential liability to the government and to assist the OIG in its resolution of the disclosed matter. So this is a certification by the CEO, uh, most likely, of most organizations. Now, if this is a claims analysis, and this could be under the anti-kickback statute or the Stark Law, uh, then you need to statistically Provide a valid sample and an extrapolation of what you believe to be the amount in dispute. And you need to have at least 100 claims that are actually reviewed from which you can extrapolate. But, you know, typically the government wants a statistically valid sample and it's otherwise known as rat stats. And so you can go on to the OIG page and find their statistical sampling software known as rat stats and apply that. But you come up with a methodology. You have to take a look at the universe or the population from which all the claims are going to be reviewed. So that would would be that look back period of the six years or the period in which the inappropriate arrangements were made. And then you look at the population, do a statistically valid review within that population as long as you are reviewing at least 100 claims and then extrapolate the results over the universe. Now, be careful here also, you know, typically when I interface with auditors, auditors will recognize when an error occurred and within a particular claim, they will say that's an error of one. I am not, as a lawyer, that interested in how many technical claim errors there are. I'm more concerned about the dollar error rate. So on that single claim, we may have upcoded by one level, but by upcoding by one level, that represents from a pure dollar perspective, a 30% error rate uh, financially. And so it's that financial error rate that I am interested in when I'm trying to extrapolate the universe in order to determine the amount of damages. And these are financial damages to the federal health care program. Now, the OIG has stated that if there are missing medical records or missing tests, then 100% of that individual claim should be identified as an error. So if you're trying to take a look at all the claims that were submitted and submit that to an auditor and the auditor picks a particular date, let's say the 10 o'clock service on July the 1st, and you go in because we billed for it. You go in and you try to locate the medical record and there's nothing there and there's no other argument with respect to the creation of the documentation for that service, then that would be a 100% error rate with respect to the claim submitted for that service. So some of the issues for which the SDP can be used for under the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law is, first off, fair market value, that we've overcompensated a physician. And again, like I've stated in Stark Integrity, I believe this is a legally driven definition, and I do a lot of work in the fair market value space from a legal perspective. Next type of issue is that the required payments from referral sources or like leases or contracts were not made. So like let's say we have a doctor who rented space uh, in the medical office building but has not paid, then you need to determine the period of time that the physician did not pay. Next is that the financial arrangement may not have been commercially reasonable, uh, whether or not the payments were made for services that were not performed or documented, or that the arrangement varied with or took into account the volume or value of of referrals. So those are just some of the legal issues with respect to financial arrangements with referral sources. Now one of the big things about calculation of damages, now this is a huge difference between the SRDP. The SRDP, as I've talked about before with the Stark Law claims, that you take a look at all of the referrals from that physician and you have to quantify that, and that's the dollar amount that you submit, for which the government will negotiate a percentage of those dollars. Here, under the OIG SDP, they will look at the financial arrangement between the two entities. So the reporting entity and the referral source. So it's not technically the reimbursement that was received that they'll settle on. It's the amount of reimbursement that was paid. So by way of example, if this is a medical directorship, it's the amount of compensation that was paid by the hospital to the physician that was deemed to be above fair market value. So it would be that portion that is above fair market value is actually the damages. So that would be the remuneration, going back to that legal definition, the remuneration between the entity and the physician. And it's that remuneration that is the damages for which the 1.5 multiplier would occur. So, That's a major difference versus taking a look at all of the referrals that came in from that, and I'm going to use air quotes again, that tainted physician. And then you need to cooperate after you file and get accepted into the self-referral disclosure protocol. And then there's also minimum settlement amounts that if there's an anti-kickback statute violation, the minimum settlement amount is $100,000. And this is as of 2022. And if it's for other matters that are not anti-kickback statutes, the minimum settlement amount is $20,000. Now, if the claims that you have are do not exceed or meet those two thresholds. Again, under the Anna Kickback Statute, $100,000. All other claims under civil monetary penalties is $20,000. Then you are encouraged to go to the applicable payer in order to have a settlement. Now This brings us to the three Captain Integrity Punch Points for this episode. Captain Integrity Punch Point number one. The OIG SDP should not be used for strict Stark Law violations. That should be to CMS under the Self-Referral Disclosure Protocol. Captain Integrity, punch point number two is the OIG SDP can be used for false or fraudulent claims, not just overpayments, violations of the anti-kickback statute, the Stark Law, as well as Mtala. And Captain Integrity punch point number three is the multiplier that the OIG will target is the minimum of a 1.5 multiplier. And if it's anti-kickback statute, then they will be looking at the inappropriate financial relationship between the entity and also the referral source or the physician. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode— the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.